Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, and welcome back to Your Tables Ready. I'm your host, Carol Haydar. This is a podcast about your favorite bars and restaurants in London. You'll hear about the journeys these entrepreneurs took straight from the founders themselves. I'll be releasing these episodes weekly, but on this occasion, I had to rush this episode out because next week is Cinco de Mayo. And that's important because my favorite Mexican restaurant, Corazon, has opened up its doors again for one day only to put together some awesome taco and margarita kits. Corazon is renowned for its signature margarita mixes and freshly made tortillas front of house. If you're not really sure what Cinco de Mayo is and just want to spice up your Tuesday, get yourself one of these kits. I'll be whacking on some mariachi tunes whilst devouring tacos and pretending like the whole world isn't crumbling outside. On today's show, you'll be hearing from the founder, Laura Sheffield. She actually goes by the title El Presidente, which totally speaks to her fun, free-spirited vibe. Laura takes us through her and co-founder, Chef Paul Daniels' experience, going from working at London's most established restaurants to building their own place from scratch. Laura was the GM at Riding House Cafe and Fisher's, part of Corbin and King. Corbin and King own Brasserie's Adele, Fisher's, The Walsley, and a few others. Chef Paul came from Saratoria, as well as Riding House Cafe. Incidentally, that's where they met. Laura and Paul are actually partners in life as well as business, and they seem to be nailing it at both. Before we dig into their story, let's chat Cinco de Mayo. Uh, so we, I mean, just a little background on our coronavirus pain. Um, you know, it's really scary. Um, but I think we, so the, the restaurant is myself and my partner, who's the chef. And we're two people who've spent, you know, very little time at home in the last couple of decades. And so we are making up for lost time. If they give awards, we are in. We got a puppy two hours before the lockdown. The cooking is like off the chart. We are, you know, but well, t- there has been a lot of work to do for me, but I mean, there has been a bit of sitting around and we're, we're loving it, but I, you know, clearly, you know, sticking our heads in the sand a little bit about the pressures, but we, um, Paul actually turned around and said, we should do something for Cinco de Mayo. And normally, historically, Cinco de Mayo is our day. Um, it's something we at Coruscant always kind of said, you know, um, Oaxaca, for example, is very big for Day of the Dead. And I guess because I'm American, um, you know, I love Cinco de Mayo. Um, there's sometimes a little bit of controversy around it, but especially right now, there doesn't, you don't really need an excuse to have a good party, albeit with some social distancing. And the minute he said it, I said, oh my gosh, yes. Because we found that, um, delivery does not work for our model and could potentially burn cash when in fact, what we desperately need to do is retain that. So currently we're hibernated and we've been hibernating at home, but for this, we're coming out. Yeah, great. Uh, Just real quick. So I guess you're never going to open for delivery during lockdown. Well, I would admit there's a little bit where we're kind of testing the waters with this. We, I think that because of our locations, there's no residential around us or very little. The offices are closed. Um, Deliveroo takes 30% of the gross sale. And in fact, delivery sales have been not great for some operators, especially at first and troublesome and et cetera. And I actually, you know, even things like the service charges built into our chef's wages, it's a bunch of number stuff and boring, but I really think it could be a bit demotivating and a loss leader. And so we kind of made a decision that 
we would at least wait when the whole world was kind of falling apart. We would wait a couple of weeks and see what the world looked like before we would think about going back. Right. Delivery has never been great for us. And so, you know, we kind of thought, let's wait and see. But I think for Cinco, it's different. I think also the world probably, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the, first of all, the response is off the charts. <laughs> it's really, really yeah. oh, that's great. Yeah, it's nuts. I kind of turned around and went, oh, I hope you're still glad you're doing this, honey. Um, <laughs> But because uh, come Tuesday, he's going to be cooking for like 550 people um, out of the basement in Soho. And let's see. But, um, but we um, kind of, you know, it's a surefire demand. We know that people go nuts for Cinco de Mayo and that they know us for that. So we can test it and see how it goes. The response, um, the pricing, the, you know, everything. Um, and then potentially look at maybe doing it every Friday, Saturday or something like that, depending on how, how long lockdown goes on. So is it just safer to just stay closed for the most part and then get like some relief from the government for rent? Well, it's a very complicated issue. I mean, I think everybody's business is different. Um, and and for some operators, you know, I, I spoke to one of my friends that owns Good Life Eatery earlier, and she's actually running a profit doing delivery at the minute, which is incredible. I think, yeah, it totally depends on your operation. On the flip side, um, you know, the government hasn't really given us any thing yet other than the promise of loans, which are not what everybody needs. That's the kind of other side of it is, you know, the amount that we would have to pay back in rent arrears means we'd just be kicking the can down the road and we'd be working for years to try and pay back this amount. So there's a huge campaign going on at the moment called National Timeout to try and get nine months rent free for all restaurants and other operators and like a turnover rent afterwards, because we're never going to be making the numbers we were before. And even then it was tough, you know? Um, So there's a, there's a lot of campaigns, but I mean, you know, how deep the government's pockets are, how, how do you freeze the entire world of, you know, for nine months and say, okay, we don't pay our rent. The landlords don't pay the banks. I mean, I'm, I, there's people much smarter than me working on this. Uh, but we, I, I think I, I accepted at some point that I probably wasn't going to affect government policy. And therefore I was just going to sit at home and play with my puppy and do some cooking and see, <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, okay. Well, good. I'm so happy that you've made the kits. I think it's so fun and I do hope you end up opening a couple days a week. Yeah. That'd be really great. So let's take a few steps back. So you are a husband and wife team, uh, which is fiance and fiance. Yeah. Right. Fiance. Yeah. So how did you guys meet? What's it like working together? <sighs> um, always <laughs> perfect. No, um, we, my background, I'm um, from Texas and grew up eating Mexican food. And I lived in New York for quite a long time. And I th- worked in fashion originally and had a thing where I, you know, we, a lot of us come to hospitality by accident. And that was certainly the case for me um, in my kind of late twenties, but also by by accident, but by kind of divine force. I was very drawn to it. Uh, Paul has been a chef for 20 something years. He trained under John Tarot and was with him for 12 years building up restaurants. And we worked together when I moved to London from the Cotswolds and took over as GM at Riding House Cafe. And Paul was the head and then exec chef there. It was a really tough business. And Paul was my best friend. And we ran that business really well together. Traditionally, GMs and head chefs don't always get on eye to eye, but we were so close and he just had my back and I had his. And I think that went on for about two and a half years, although there was a lot of flirting. Uh, And then (laughs) uh, at some point, I was going to go and, and that became a more permanent fixture in our lives. We then... I moved to Corbin and King 
and opened a restaurant for that group. And then at some point after that, there was an opportunity for me to write a business plan and put it in front of people that might support it if I had a unique idea. I did that. And at some point in the pre-opening stages, I realized that I didn't really want to open a restaurant with anybody but Paul. Paul is not Mexican. Um, We made a decision to, rather than bring over a Mexican chef, which was originally the plan, to send Paul to Mexico. So it was kind of a honey, don't come back to you've learned Mexican food sort of situation. (laughs) Um, And he came back distinctly larger, I might add. Um, Oh, God. (laughs) uh, And um, so... We kind of just went for it. I mean, there's nobody else who looks at the world the same way, people management, food, and that I trust, you know, the same way. And suddenly, as you start looking at the numbers and it all becomes very real, you start realizing that some guy you, you know, don't know that well, it's not the same. Um, And Paul understands the London market and managing chefs here, which is really important. And so Paul resigned and, and did this with me. We thought about it for and talked about it. I mean, his parents looked absolute panicked that we'd made this decision. Um, And uh, they'd worked together for years and it nearly killed them. So they were like, don't do it. But um, it has been, there are times it's tough. I think we're a lot better about it than we were in the early days. We draw a line a bit better. Generally, we've made some choices like we bought a house in October and I think having a bit more division from work and not just working all the time out of a tiny flat in Belsize Park is a bit, that's kind of improved a lot. We seem to leave work at work a bit more. And we have, you know, we've done some work with people on how to realize when somebody's showing you a red light mentally to say, (laughs) I might be talking, but I don't want to talk about it or, you know, that sort of thing. And because we'd worked together before, generally it tends to go pretty well. We are a good team. Great. So a lot of restaurants start with doing like a street food stall or like a like a, tr- a taco truck or something like that. Yeah. Did you give that any thought? Because you guys went straight to restaurant. I mean, and that must have been expensive. And even though you guys both come from the background that you needed to be, um, what made you go straight for that rather than testing the market? Um, oh, that was probably me. I think... In retrospect, I should have, but, but I, at the time was, I really did. First of all, I'm not, I'm not 22 years old and had years to spend kind of testing my whatever kind of waiting. Like a lot of people were kind of happy being street food traders and hit it right. And then grew from that. Whereas I think, you know, I was in my late thirties and kind of wanted to do this, I guess, properly and could get the money to do it properly. I think it's very hard to find in my mind, I was looking for a chef who was going to kind of help me to change people's perceptions of Mexican food here in Britain and to pay someone who has that set of skills, not just the creating one dish, but creating many and the consistency and the team management and the numbers management meant, you know, you were going to need to be able to pay somebody on a, a good salary and not something you can pay out of a tent, you know? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. I w- wanted to make a decent splash. I, I've never been in that food market world and proper restaurants are you know I guess I've done it a few times opened a few new concepts now um so we just went straight for that but I I actually I do think it would have been smart to test in advance now that I yeah go back yeah did you have to get funding or were you guys self-funded oh no no we I uh I raised uh, many hundreds of thousands of pounds right um from from some great people who have been there and done it um, they, you know, people who've created some of the best 
food brands in the UK um, who, you know, have been, many of them have invested in us again uh, on three times and have been, you know, shared their lessons along the way and are there not just for financial guidance or whatever, but really the whole part of it, the moral support, the, you know, getting your head in the right space for the journey. Yeah, absolutely. So your partner did all of the recipes for the menu. What about the drinks? I love your black cherry frozen margaritas. <laughs> oh, you're one of those. And I, d- I didn't like that th- it was seasonal because I came in once and it wasn't on the menu. Mm. Sometimes we, yeah, we have changed it. We, we started with a jasmine tea margarita. And then at some point, I don't know, we went and did a couple of other things. We've done peach. We've done, uh, I can't remember now. Um, black cherry is the best one for the winter. You know, it's hard to come up with the right seasonal fruit but we have done peach and stuff I think oh we did like an Aperol one one summer the drinks were very much what both the food content and the drinks were both really led by me but obviously not recipes I did bring in someone who I think was absolutely brilliant at helping create some of the core signature drinks for Corazon and the our house margarita is a really unique spin on the classic that's really signature but consistent. And um, you know it's good when you hear, like, Americans going, oh, my God, this is a great effing margarita. You're like, okay, we nailed this, you know. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's, you know, we make our own mix every morning fresh in the restaurant by zesting grapefruit and lime and all that and turning it into our own signature mix. Whereas until that point, it felt like there were so many restaurants just bringing in some terrible mix and sweet and sour mix. And, and, you know, um, it's a really strong margarita. And he helped me do that. He helped me create, you know, our our own Michelada recipe. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say it's our own. It's just that we needed to have ours be consistent and make a decision. You know, help me choose our tequila and mezcal list for opening and maybe a couple of other things, um, a couple of core cocktails in our Paloma and stuff like that. And then we, I did hire some, you know, whenever you say I'm opening a Mexican restaurant and with a kind of tequila margarita bar, you know, we clearly selected opening bartenders that had that up their sleeve as a real strength or more importantly, a real passion. And so from there, they created some great drinks, including that black cherry margarita. And that continues to this day. We wouldn't get anybody else in. My guys are constantly putting drinks in front of me and experimenting and reading and traveling and going all over town to see what other people are doing with agave. So... Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. When you opened, did you have a look at what the competitors were doing? Were you worried about any of them? Um, what, what were your thoughts on competitors? Because I know Mexican's huge now, but I think around the time you started, there weren't many. Yes. They were all just starting to like boom at the same time. So Yes. Someone said it was that. like when you wait for a bus for ages and then three come along. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't much competition at all. There was Bredos, which was the street market thing at that point and didn't you know seem poised to do anything else. Uh, there was obviously Oaxaca, but I see that as quite different. There was obviously what I thought was promising was the burrito bars, I think, had made people familiar with the flavors of Mexico, if not maybe the excellence of certain, you know, the higher end. Um, I saw it as, you know, if Oaxaca was, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, but if their average spin was 14 or 15 pounds, then ours was going to be closer to 25. You know, we were, we were kind of sitting around different other groups where it's a more premium casual. I just thought there was a gap in the market yeah. there. And we 
were, I would say, not entirely surprised to find out that we were opening alongside other people who saw the same trend. You know, you could see it coming a mile away if you're looking at food all the time and you know how great Mexican food is and you're looking at London that's eating every cuisine on the planet and yet there's nothing great that's Mexican, you know. Um, So it was going to happen. I'm not sure we were quite prepared for it to all happen in the same about 10 days. Um, (laughs) So maybe, yeah, that was not entirely our favorite time. Um, I think we, we missed out on some press as a result of that and press that we thought we would get that would help us to kind of stand out on what was kind of a risky location. And so that first year was really tough. You know, we, we stood around for three or four months at least waiting for our critic review to walk in, you know, whether it was Jay Rayner, Grace Dent, whatever it is, and they never came. <laughs> and, oh, right. and, you know, we staffed it up to the max and every dish was whatever. And everyone's, we were, you know, working on everyone's smile and posture and hustle and all that stuff. And it, funnily enough, I think, Somewhere around, because we opened in December, somewhere around January or February, I said, you know what, forget it. I Let's just, you know, I don't think we're getting this critic because suddenly all the reviews of other places come out. And I actually think that's when the restaurant got really good because we, really? yeah, we relaxed. We just relaxed into yeah. it. Yeah. And had fun and just got wacky and didn't take everything so seriously. And I think that is actually when I started really enjoying it more. It didn't feel like we were quite so on edge. It was, it was better. Yeah, yeah. So did you have to do any advertising in the time you were waiting? I mean, was it always full? Were you guys, oh, how were you doing? No, we had, <laughs> we had a very, very tough first year. Uh, we, the, the thing about Coruscant on Poland Street is that we, I mean, we, we started this whole thing pre-Brexit. So at the time, it was casual dining boom, couldn't get a site for love or money, huge premiums, you know, 300K just to get in the door before you ever start fitting, you know, that sort of thing in Soho. It was ridiculous. And I found this site, which I thought, I, you know, I liked for a Mexican concept. I didn't want it to be ritzy. This wasn't going to be tacos put together with tweezers and things. It was meant to be relaxed. <laughs> right. It was meant to be like you could put your feet up on the, seat across from you and kind of have a taco drip down your arm and music's a bit loud and all of that and yet still elevated but you know I didn't want it on some like Mayfair whatever and I had worked because we were at Riding House you know I knew that area of kind of where Soho meets Fitzrovia really well it's the right demographic of people creative and business and retail and tourists and you know different types of people coming all the time it was under rented it was huge I mean you just have so much traffic nearby that if you can just get some of them in you know I think the entire area was under development well first Brexit was announced uh, and then everything was under development so you had the whole area between Oxford Street and Tottenham Court Road was just becoming was booming and what I in my inexperience failed to see was that it would therefore be under construction for quite Mm. a long time so Sorry, I'm getting distracted because I just... Well, all these beeps that you're hearing are orders for taco kits. Anyway. Oh, um, great. <laughs> so, um, so we... Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, we had... Um, there was a big office block across from us that was being turned into a luxury department store called Flannels. And we thought, this is perfect. Turns out, oh my God, they ripped out the entire center of the building and there was pneumatic drilling and cranes and you couldn't even find us for like the first year. The We had to keep our doors closed we had tons of people call us and go, I just can't find you. I gave up. Um, And we had an empty dining room and we'd spent quite a lot of money. And so it was absolutely terrifying. 
I think as well, I realized that our backgrounds has been working for really big, busy operators. And whilst we like to think we're really great at our jobs, we realized that what we hadn't done was ever help those people create the demand in terms of marketing. And that side of it, we were, you know, I, at Riding House Cafe, when we would do, you know, 650 covers every Saturday brunch. And you almost get to where you take that as a given and you forget how the owners that own it, you know, what they did in order to make that demand happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was like, I guess, your biggest learning. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, to be fair, I thought that we were okay because we'd taken on great PR and all that, but, you know, we covered that. So it was a bit, um, you know, there was definitely a, oh crap moment where I realized that I needed to get a marketing hat on and that I hadn't. And that it's even I'd done some things about, you know, being, keeping things really simple or having loads of integrity to ha- do certain things. And I'm not saying I lost our integrity, but I, I realized I needed to make some more commercial decisions about the business if we were going to survive. And we, yeah, just a few other things. It, it was it was a lot of work that was needed in terms of just brightening up how we appeared on the street making our brand stronger, getting our digital kind of SEO in place so that at the very least, if we have a small shop front and we're behind construction, people find us on their mobile phones. You know, they, mm. they find us there. Um, getting Google to like us, basically. Um, yeah. And to be fair, all of that kicked in around the same time as all the construction stopped. And suddenly we went, boom, like massively busy. And during that time, I think the other thing we did was, and this is a in some ways, this is the great thing about restaurants today, is that during that year that we were terribly concerned that we w- had an empty dining room and maybe it wasn't going to work, there are a lot of restaurants that would cut back on dish costs, employment costs, all of that. And we did the opposite. And in fact, I guess you could say we cut back a bit because we did everything ourselves, but we were in there, you know, every single customer making sure they left saying, oh my God, that food is so good. Or those people are so nice. Or that was so fun or whatever it was, you know, oh my God, that's margarita, you know. And every customer mattered to us in a way that meant by the end of that year, we didn't take anybody for granted. We earned it. We sweat. And those values stick with you in a way that, you know, maybe we did take that line out down the street for granted before, you know, uh, in our previous businesses. And now they, people leave now. And when they've had that good of a time, they have the ability to leave you a five-star review, which on its very own, then created demand without us doing anything else. We had a 4.9 something. We were the highest rated Mexican restaurant in London. And so that alone meant people were like, what's this little place people are talking about? And they would go past construction. So actually that, that one thing alone, just really being excellent and making sure everybody left you happy and left good reviews immediately made all the difference was just everything. And then, yeah, at some point it became a bit of a beast. It was so busy. Uh, I mean, yeah, I love it. Can we talk a bit about your interior design? I love it. I know you hired article design. Yeah. Yeah. Katie. How did you find them? And Katie was recommended by someone I know at JKS Restaurants, um, Bow and Hoppers, etc. She had done Bow and Hoppers and a few other great restaurants. She, I think, much like me, was uh, probably uh, someone who worked in her own industry. She worked for other big agencies and had set out on her own. And so we were, well, ours took a long time to take off. But, you know, when we started, I was one of her first clients. So you have 
two women both trying to set out and start their own companies and just naturally got on really well. Um, I was probably an, uh, no, not, not probably definitely an absolute nightmare client. Um, <laughs> Why? Because it's, it's your first restaurant. And so you're also, whilst you're on this path of design, you're also trying to figure out what it is. What is my restaurant, you know, and they have to suffer through your changes and moments of doubt. And, and I think there's a lot of ways that kind of slightly aspirational, but funky Mexican food can be interpreted. You know, funnily enough, of all the Mexican restaurants that opened in those same few weeks, everyone took a very different approach. And yet all were really good. Ours was kind of vintage, funky, Mexico City, Southern California, you know, but others went different ways. Um, And we, you know, there's also, I have a design background, so I'm a complete nightmare, (laughs) basically. Yeah, if I just said, okay, look, just make sure I've got 50 seats, please, and do whatever, her life would have been a lot easier. And yet somehow in between, um, we did create something I'm really proud of. And I, a lot of the things I realized, oh, I said, do that. I said, it's like, wow, you know, but, um, but Katie has the patience of a saint for putting up with me. (laughs) Really random one. The, the shop front used to have a neon sign saying Taqueria. Yes. And now it says tacos and cocktails. What happened? We got sued. What? Oh, is it Taqueria in Notting Hill? Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. So that happened as we came home from our first I forget, but let's just say the longest working day of our lives. And we came home and we had a lawsuit thing. Uh, And I had checked that we trademarked Coruscant, but I didn't check Taqueria because, hello, it's a descriptive word, you know. Right, right. Well, they had managed to trademark it like now it'd be like 14, 15 years ago and nobody questioned it. And then this whole thing went on where they wanted to test their trademark so they could increase their company value. And they wanted to test it against us. And because we clearly wouldn't be able to fight a trademark, you know, uh, case in, uh, in high court. So anyway, we settled it. And as part of it, I had to take the sign down. Oh my gosh, that's know. crazy. I, I did think for just a second, because I do also love Takaria, like maybe yes. it had something to do with that. But, but I, I never would have thought, wow, gosh. You know, their argument was that in the UK, if you stop people at Oxford Street and say, what is a Takaria, that most of them would say, well, that's that restaurant in Notting Hill. And we were like, no, taqueria is like a bar or a brasserie or a pizzeria or a, you know, you can't trademark that word, but we weren't going to spend 50 grand to fight it. So we, yeah, we let that one go. Well, I'm glad I asked. That's way more interesting than just we felt like changing it. <laughs> no, it was it was <laughs> not something we wanted to do. And in fact, uh, all the other restaurants that are using the word taqueria technically are not supposed to, but I think everyone's kind of... I suspect the fight is over. I don't I don't really know. At some point, we tried to lead some charge and get everyone to go in and get a lawyer together and all that. And then it kind of didn't happen. But I suspect everyone will just use the word now. And yeah. Right, right. Um, you guys have been open since 2016. And then you've recently opened in Westfield. Yes. What does it take to decide to open a second restaurant? Even though I know that one's more of like a kiosk, but at what stage are you like, yep, we're ready to open a second? And then why would you choose Westfield over opening, let's say, like a second location somewhere else in London? Um, we we never set out to do one restaurant. We always set out to do more than one. I don't, I don't, I mean, that's just who we are as operators. Mm-hmm. I think you also have to be realistic about numbers, Um in restaurants at the moment that if I, if I were to open one, it would look different than what Coruscant does. Um, it probably would be bigger 
I I think we, you know, the real fact is that it's very rare these days for one restaurant to make very much money, if anything at all. So scalability is terribly important and, and was critical to our brand and critical to me raising that money. And so we were always keen to open something else. Obviously, the world looked a little different than when we started this pre-Brexit. Westfield was appealing because a lot of reasons. You have 34 million people going in and out of there every year. So it gave us the ability to have brand awareness, which for all the reasons we've talked about, obviously appealed to us. It gave us, allowed us to diversify our brand. So we had another arm so that no matter what's happening in the world, you have a different kind of, oh, well, we also have a counter that fits in different types of footprints. You know, it costs a remarkable lot well, it was supposed to. Um, no, it did cost uh, less money than, for example, a a big another big restaurant, br- bricks and mortar, as we might call it, with a you know reception and all that stuff. It runs a lot leaner, so it's clearly a much more concise concept because you've just got kind of a couple of people on the front counter and a few chefs or whatever, as opposed to frankly, what takes up 99% of my time, which is Poland Street, which is reservations and parties and function events and all of that stuff, you have a much more concise model. And more importantly, I guess, is that these days, even if, you know, restaurants take a long time to add up. So if you open something that is, uh, you know, let's say we open another one, which is, by the way, the plan, another full service Corazon style restaurant in wherever king's cross or whatever you whatever you say it takes a really long time for people to discover you and for momentum to build and so you don't actually even start breaking even until three six maybe 18 months in many cases and Mm. whereas westfield you open the doors and there's people churning ready to eat spending and so we didn't need the level of capital and it wasn't necessarily the kind of risk that we were taking it was an interim step um right right and has it proven to be successful? Yes. It has thrown us surprises like everything we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have to kind of change. We, we've, we've learned a lot. We realized that to the Westfield audience that brand recognition is huge and we don't have any. So people are, it's almost like people go to Westfield and go, right, just head for the golden arches, you know, like right, they right. kind of just, yeah, they go once a year and they, you know, and that they like the familiar. And so they we didn't make it obvious enough what we were i'm not big on obvious i'm like oh cool design whatever that doesn't work be obvious we needed to be more obvious and so we did a bit of a an owen um kind of transparent product that people can see being produced is terribly important so pizza pilgrims has their pizza ovens you know the um what else is there well, Comptoir Libanay has all these big, you know, huge vats of couscous and different things. And everybody's got visible product in there. But if Mexican food is visible in our thing, it's probably not very good. Like you can't put it out and then, you know. And so we responded. It took us a while, but we got, we sort of pivoted our brand right before the lockdown, I might add, uh, <laughs> to do pictures of the food, which sounds really naff, but they're awesome. It's really cool. It looks like a match, mix and match sort of taco thing. It's it's almost like a shake shack of tacos, you know, but it's really fun. It's punchy. It still looks premium, but you can see the photos and they're on these screens and people were stopping and our sales went way up and it was like, right, this is working. We need to be really clear. This is Mexican. This is premium. Um, and it needed to shout very clearly, um, kind of what you get for what you're spending. 
and it didn't. And so we fixed that. But anyway, other than that, it was working. I mean, you know, it did. Sure. It was, you know, month one, we were breaking even. So um, it, in that in that sense, it, it definitely proved itself. I think um, we're very eager to go back in there and see it really, really work. But I don't know when the crowds are going to be pouring back into Westfield. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming you're getting a bit of a break from that rent as well. Not currently. No, uh, but, gosh. Uh, I mean, frankly, everyone is just not paying their rent while they while we work. <laughs> okay. just, it just don't pay anything. Yeah, uh, while while we work out what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we haven't talked about how you chose the name Corazon. Oh, I debated a lot of things, and at some point. I stumbled on an image of a Lotteria card of Corazon and it was, it's actually of the kind of anatomical heart. And it, you know, I, I guess I believe really strongly that restaurants are not contrary to everything we've talked about and money and growth plans and all of that, that really what makes them great is heart and soul. I had just come out of working for Corbin and King where Jeremy King, who's, you know, one of the most influential restaurateurs in the world. That's something he says all the time. And I believe it very much. You have to be led by heart and soul. And I'd seen this image um, and there's also this lovely phrase that in Spanish, um, barriga y ana corazón contento, which means when the belly is full, the heart is happy. And there's something about Mexican food that I had kept saying while I was trying to raise money and build a business plan about that Mexican food just makes you feel good. Like you think about different cuisines, you think about Japanese and you think of one thing and Italian, you might think of a grandmother in the kitchen and, you know, fresh tomato sauce and stuff. But when you think about Mexican food, you think about people having fun, good tunes in the background, which we did. You think about margaritas, fiesta, but you, you know, it, it, it's a cuisine that just epitomizes a bit of happiness, you know, and, and everything we did around the restaurant was just supposed to make you feel good. And the name kind of was meant to bring that together. I think it, it's something that whilst maybe a more obvious name, like, you know, Taco Dave or whatever would have been right. more, you know, <laughs> more clear and obvious to people walking down Oxford Street. Oh, hey, tacos down there. I think we built something that we that has more depth and that we can build on over the years. And that that kind of the brand of Corazon and happiness and, you know, full belly, happy heart is something you can you can really uh, get your teeth into. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's great. Um, I like to finish all of my podcasts off with asking when you're not eating Mexican, where are you eating in London? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's like asking me my favorite film or my favorite fashion designer or something. Yeah. Um, you can choose a few. Um, I mean, our, our as a couple, our favorite restaurant is River Cafe. And I think, you know, it, it with the price tag to match, but I'll pay it. We are absolute suckers for a Sunday roast. Like, we'll pay whatever it takes for the best. And we did, I personally thought the bowl and last was just the best um, in in Highgate, yeah. we used to eat there quite a bit. We eat everything. Paul really likes my Texas, like when going back to Texas with me and eating chicken fried steak and things like that and barbecue. That's like you know things we really enjoy. But I wouldn't say we found that that we love in London. We, admittedly, since we opened the restaurant, we eat out a lot less. But we, I mean, the last couple of years we sort of got really crazy about Korean food. Um, mm. and that was something where I, I became obsessed with Korean food in the first year of the restaurant opening. I'm not sure why, but I almost like Korean food as much, almost as much as Mexican. Um, oh, wow. That's huge. Yeah. And Paul is a steak man. So he loves to get a chef buddy and go blow all the money at Hawksmoor. 
Oh, nice. Well, I'm so looking forward to receiving my taco kit. Oh. And for everything to open up again, and I'd love to see where you guys end up next. I mean, King's Cross is a good shout if that's where you're thinking. <laughs> yes, it is a good. Shout. Oh, yeah, there's several. You know, it needs. Yeah, we. So we were we were doing a we were a, I don't know if you caught that, but we were announcing a crowdfund when all this kicked off. In fact, I was in the middle of filming the video to support the crowdfund when, like, we had to rush it because we were like, they're going to lock us down and we're not going to have a restaurant shoot in next week. So it was a bit of an interesting time. But anyway, that crowdfund will happen, but it will happen when we see that people's confidence and optimism is coming back. You know, I'm not going to go ask mm-hmm. people to invest in restaurants right now because we don't really know what it's going to look like. But once it a new normal is found and it will be found and we will make it work. Then we will go out and we'll be fundraising to do another restaurant and it will be um, a Coruscant, not like what we have at Westfield. It will be a proper, it will be bigger than Poland street as well with probably a bigger bar. So we will see you there for black cherry frozen margarita. Yes. Yes. I love it. Great. So to summarize a bit for those of you thinking of opening up your own place, Seems like no matter how much experience you have, there's always going to be something you don't know. Laura and Paul were both very accomplished within the industry and came from big-name established restaurants. Yet it took them by surprise when they realized they hadn't accounted for how to actually drive demand when something's totally new. That said, not every new place needs to start as a food truck or market stall. You can go straight to bricks and mortar, but you need to have a strong plan of how to get people through the door when you open up. Don't just rely on footfall. Also a huge takeaway, every single customer is important. Each five-star review creates demand. Ultimately, Corazon has become the highest-rated Mexican restaurant in London. Finally, don't forget to check your trademarks. All of them, even if it seems silly. Okay, that's it. Thanks for joining us. Get your taco kit, enjoy your fiestas next week, and I'll see you soon. Happy Cinco de Mayo.